Hi, and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. Welcome back to the Product Science Podcast. This week, my guest is Andrew Scottsko. Andrew is a product discovery and strategy advisor to tech companies who has built products and led teams for 13 years. By day, he advises companies on product leadership and strategy to make products which find traction in the market and help people thrive in the process. By night, he picks up the mic on his podcast, Make Things That Matter, and explores how product innovation, cognitive science, and org design are creating the future of work. Before discovering product management, Andrew worked in both engineering and marketing and has worked in a wide range of spaces, consumer web, consumer hardware, decentralized communities, human performance, open source software, mental health, ocean science, and agriculture, aquaculture. He's worked with all stages of companies from nascent startups to the Fortune 100. Welcome. Thanks, Holly. It's great to be with you. I have to dive right into a question about your work with ocean science and agriculture. So what's that? (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering where you'd pick up that thread. Yeah, so I've had the Good fortune to have a wide range of interests and get to work on a lot of stuff in my career. And what I'm what that was referring to is I've worked on a number of different things, whether they were like automated farming. I've worked a lot in I spent a few years doing it working on a big project in like fishery health management for aquaculture. So basically, how do you make farmed fishing a more sustainable, healthy operation? And then I also was part of a team that incubated a startup that is in stealth mode right now that's about ocean health monitoring and how you do, let's say, high resolution and high frequency data of the water column in really important bodies of water. Wow. That sounds super cool. Yeah. I spent a lot of the last five years of my career working on environmentally related projects and products. And that's one half of my big domains of interest. And the other half is really essentially all things about really the sort of through line of my career for 10 years or so is about how do you help people thrive in harmony within themselves and within the physical environment we all live in. So there was a big chunk of my career very focused on the physical environment around nature and the way our human systems interface with it, and then putting a lot more energy into the human thriving piece of this now in terms of how do you help people be well, be flourishing, be thriving as they do the things they do in the world. So that's all the things around mental health, performance, future of work, so on and so forth. Yeah, that's really exciting stuff and so important for all. I'm really glad people like you are working on it. (laughs) Thanks. How did you get involved in product management? So I think like most of us, I have a weird sort of winding story. I don't think I've met anybody, or I don't even know if there is a prototypical story into product yet other than it was all over the place. For me, it actually started before I ever knew of this thing called quote unquote product management. I actually started my career in marketing, doing very quantitative driven marketing, what we would probably call growth hacking now. This was before that term had gotten popularized. And then after doing that for a few years, I was collaborating really closely with the product engineering teams and spending a lot of time with them, really trying to understand the product and who was it for and how were we doing it and really collaborating on coming up with new features and new angles for the product. And eventually I just realized, wait a minute, I want to be on that side of the house. Like I want to be in that other room doing stuff. And our CTO, basically on the startup I was working on, I started hacking and coding on things on the side and learned a little bit of coding and started hacking together my own tools to try to make the marketing campaigns that I wanted to at the time. And there weren't tools that were doing what I wanted. And so at some point I had hacked together multiple APIs. It was like the MailChimp API and the Facebook API and one other one I can't remember to do some totally custom marketing campaign that worked really well. And our CTO was like, 
wait a minute, you're in the wrong room. Like you should be on my team. And so he internally poached me and I switched engineering in-house. Basically it was like, hey, if you want to try, we think you could pull it off. We think you could learn to be a full production engineer. And this was before coding bootcamp thing was popular. So that wasn't really an option. So it was effectively like, we're just going to throw you in the deep end, but the team's going to help you figure this out. So I went into a cave for a year and I was either studying or working six days a week for a year and switched the engineering team, did that. And then I spent the next five odd years doing engineering and working on all kinds of different projects. And then somewhere around 2014, 15 in there, I rediscovered or maybe discovered for the first time this thing called product management. And I was like, what? Like there's a thing that puts these two sides of my brain together. There's this, there's actually a, a label for this that has the human stuff and the technical stuff. And it's just that from that moment, it felt right. And I was like, yeah, that's where I want to be. So that was my way in. Yeah, that sounds like a really fun journey. And you have a good place for you <laughs> and your skills. Yeah, I think it's nice if you're somebody with a brain like mine that likes lots of different things. Product is a really good fit. There are certain people who just want to do one thing and go as deeply as possible into that one thing. And that's wonderful. My mind doesn't really work that way. My mind really prefers being an integrator, a synthesizer, a bridge, and playing the game that way. So yeah, it's nice to find a place that felt right for me. Tell me more about some of the places you've worked at. What are some of the ones that you're most proud of? Yeah, thanks. There's been a lot of different ones. I've worked on everything from early stage startups up to working with some very large companies in the Fortune 500 and 100. And for me, the sweet spot has really been that early startup up through Series B, what feels like my favorite zone, or working with a large company that is really truly spinning out a new thing. And so that it's functioning like a startup anyway, just within a much larger context. I think for me, some of my favorite ones that are just top of mind lately, and this is totally biased by the fact that I was just talking to people who I worked with on this, so a little recency bias here. Two of the ones that really come to mind that were favorites for me were the startup I was just describing where I went through this real journey from marketing into engineering and product. That was a startup called Namesake that pivoted a bunch and became a lot of other things. And then it became Chill and then it became Tappy and that ended up being Tinder's first acquisition. So that's still maybe the most fun I've ever had working with the team. Just thinking of some of the crazy experiences we had, we went through a hyperscaling phase. And then another one that really comes to mind that a fair number of people know and really enjoyed was Pebble, the smartwatch, which was the first hardware product I ever worked on it was a few years after the Namesake startup. But those are two that I think really shaped me. And then later on, I was learning new skills, but I think it was very much laid on top of that foundation. Yeah. So let's dive a little further into your work at what was once called Namesake. How big was the company when you joined? Oh, it was very small. I was, I think, the first employee not on the founding team. So I was a single digit number person there. And we went through a whole bunch of different phases. Like this is where I learned viscerally what a pivot means. <laughs> and the thing that was amazing about that team, just still maybe the highest density of talent I've ever worked with, just some incredibly talented people. The thing that was really the most crazy period of that one was we were at the time. So this is like product number, I think three, <laughs> we went through quite a few of them. And I'm not talking like tweaks. I'm talking like entirely new products, throw the thing out and build an entirely new thing. But at the time, the one that took off and got big was what people lovingly referred to at the time as Pinterest for video. And it was this idea, it was kind of like right as the world of social video was becoming a thing. The thesis we were exploring was, well, how do consumers explore and discover video they really care about. So we were here in Los Angeles. Obviously, the entertainment industry is huge here. And so there was a lot of tie-ins to what is the future of TV? How does indie film play into all of this? And so we happened to hit an inflection point right as Facebook Open Graph was becoming a thing. 
And so it was a little bit of, it was a lot of luck, right place, right time. And between that and a lot of really intense email marketing work, we grew really quickly. And there was a phase where we grew from in the tens of thousands of users into the tens of millions of users in a six to eight month period. Wow. No one was sleeping. I lost count of the number of times I was sleeping at the office, the number of times that everything was breaking. We were on 24-hour a day, rotating shifts of the team. It was insanity for quite a while. It's the most intense phase I've ever gone through in anything I've worked on, I think. It sounds really intense. It was fun, but crazy. For all the startups I've worked at, I've never actually slept at the office. That's good. That's a good thing. <laughs> I, try, I really try not to do that anymore. I've done it more times than I like. <laughs> But one thing I'll say on that, I know that your audience really likes not just the story, but what's the takeaway? What's the principle? One of the things that I think I learned viscerally from that experience that is really easy to overlook as product people, because we so fall in love with what we are building, is the importance of distribution. And most products die not because they didn't make a product. It's because no one uses it. And no one might use it because maybe the product's not very good, or maybe it's just completely disconnected from a user need or a user want. But a lot of the times, just the company hasn't found any kind of traction channel. And so I think that's really like a big takeaway. I was just, the other day, I was actually just rereading what I think is one of the best books on this ever, which is Traction by Justin Maris and Gabriel Weinberg. And it is, I think, a must read for product people, particularly the first five chapters. I think those are actually evergreen and timeless of like how to think about this. Everything after that has probably expired in terms of its tactics by now. But those first five chapters, I think I'll probably read once a year for the rest of my career. That's so fascinating. Can you share a little bit about what's in those first five chapters? Yeah, absolutely. So what they really lay out in there is what they call their bullseye framework, which is think of like a bullseye target where they have this concentric circles. And the idea is that there's a huge number of possible channels that could work. And this is everything they list out something like 20 different channels in the book, everything from blogs to viral marketing to SEM to offline events and trade shows, like a huge, really broad range. And the idea is they're having this framework to help you, first of all, counteract your own bias and explore widely of the possible channels that you might use, and then start to narrow that in and get a subset of that that you're going to go really aggressively test with the hopes of finding one or maybe two channels that actually work for you. And I think there's maybe two important things about this. One is that most people, most of us have a bias that we don't really acknowledge. There's a lot of people who maybe they, a lot of, it's very traditional bias is like a lot of engineers and product people really dislike the idea of sales. And that's super common. But maybe sales is exactly the thing this company needs. Yes. And so if you have a bias against that and you're not even willing to explore, that could be a real disadvantage. You could be setting yourself up or your company up to get stuck or not succeed. So that's, I think, big thing one. And then I think big thing two is just that if you find any traction channel at all that works, that can make your company. Most companies that work only have one channel that works or at least works for the stage of the company that they're in, right? If you're early, you're trying to figure out what you're doing, find the value. It's very likely that traction channels that work in your earliest days will have to change as you go through the different phases of growth. I think that's probably the other big takeaway is like what works in the first year on your way to product market fit is very likely not going to be the thing that's going to take you from you know that initial product market fit into a very significant company later on. Yes. I love what you're saying because I think a lot of product people discount the importance of distribution and focus so much on building the right thing, which is extremely important, but you also have to spread the news about the right thing. Totally. I mean, that whole, I don't know about you, but I remember my dad saying to me growing up so many times, like, if you build a better mousetrap, they'll beat a path to your door or whatever the phrase is. Maybe. Not if they don't know about it. Or maybe the path to my door is too expensive and the numbers don't work and now we have to reinvent the business. Yeah. Like that's the game. 
how did that startup stumble on the thing that finally worked? Great question. So we had been experimenting to that point from their bullseye framework. We tried a lot of stuff. I don't know if we tried all 20 channels that they list out, but if we went through it, we probably tried at least half of them. We had tried everything from offline events to email to virals. We really a lot of weird stuff. What ended up finding earlier traction was email, actually. And so at the time, because I had just come out of the marketing side, I was still doing both. And so I was very involved in that and then also coding. And so in effect, I was doing a lot of product work there. But my point is, we found an email format that was really working for people because the whole idea of the service at that time, or the product at that time, was to help you find the gold, right? Everybody knew there was a lot of cool stuff out there, but you couldn't find it. There was just too much noise. And so we were essentially saying the whole point of this product was like, we're going to help you find that gold and have fun connecting with people around it. And so one of the things we started doing, and this is right on that bridge between do things that don't scale, do things that do scale, was we had a few folks in-house who, let's say, had very good editorial taste. Like They knew what was great. They really did. They looked at so much content. They knew the market. They were almost in-house curators, although they had normal jobs too. And so we would look at that and combine it with data and figure out like, here are some of the best videos. And we would send out an email. And we at one point, we started sending it to everybody. And then later, we split it into segments. But it was like, here's the one video you need to watch. And people love that because it took so much noise. And so it was like, nope, one thing. And that started doing really well. And people would start forwarding it to each other. And then we built in links back into the site. And so we had all these kind of onboarding loops set up. And when we found that started to work, then we said, okay, this is working. Let's get fancier. And then you can start to layer in the getting more complicated, adding segmentation, doing maybe more customized onboarding flows. But it was after we found that core mechanic of, oh, wow, people really like this thing where we just send them one email a day and just here's the one video. I think that... A lot of what you're talking about is getting at this idea of experimentation and rolling with the changes. And that is both incredibly valuable and maybe a lot harder than people think it is. And I guess I'm curious how you develop skill at it. At actually doing it, like running experiments? I'm laughing to myself because I feel like I should have a better answer for this, but I feel like it's one of those things where you just do it. And there's a lot of really good conceptual models out there for this. There's a ton of books and blog posts and podcasts and whatever that explain how. And there are really good ones. But I think most of it is you just try it. I don't think actually the skill side of it is that hard. People are smart. They figure it out. I actually think the harder part is emotional, not so much cognitive. I don't know if that's interesting to push into, but that's where my spidey sense goes. No, it is. And I think actually I wasn't very specific, but what I had in mind about it being hard was more emotional and cultural. Oh, yeah. Okay. In that case, yes, I definitely have things to say. The concepts, just go read the blogs or whatever. But on the emotional and cultural, I think they're actually really tied. And what I mean by that is people respond to incentives. And incentives are sometimes explicit and other times they're implicit in the culture. And so I think this is where good product leadership at whatever level, like if you have one product person for the whole company, it's them or it's the founder or the CEO, but wherever that's coming from, it needs to be baked in. There needs to be this sense of discovery and experimentation and what's the old writing saw about killing your darlings. It's so easy to get attached to our precious little ideas and we just love them. And we think they're going to work so well. So I think the hard parts are really the emotional detachment and the willingness to say, yeah, we're going to try this and actually expecting it not to work and 
I think that's actually a much healthier place that it takes you to because you divest your emotions from any particular campaign or feature or whatever working. And so, for example, like one mental flip that I do that I think most people may, I don't know if people have heard this or not, but I do a lot of advising and consulting on early stage projects and companies. And sometimes that's informal, sometimes that's formal, but I'm thinking of one that I recently started talking with a friend about who he's very excited about this. And he's also a veteran of startups. So he knows the game, but he's so in it that he can't, he's too close. And so it's very interesting to see like, how is that conversation different than a conversation that might occur with somebody who's not used to this? And the thing that I observe is there is a detachment emotionally from the thing. And we're actually both trying to kill it. We're both trying to figure out all the ways it's not going to work. Because if we can figure those out, we can build stuff around them or change course, which is, it's like a weird inversion from the, oh, I have this precious idea that I'm going to do everything in my power to bring into the world. Ironically, the best thing you can do to bring into the world is try to figure out all the ways the world's going to kill it and then deal with that ahead of time. Absolutely. I teach around that concept as well, that you need to surface the risks and figure out how you're going to manage them or can you manage them or are they too big? Sure. Because it's not uncommon for like major product launches to fail when there was some major risk that everybody knew and no one would talk about because it was the elephant in the room. And yep. you got to get rid of that. Yep. And th what you're describing there is actually, I think that goes really big into the culture piece you were pointing to. This is where something like psychological safety or power distance as concepts within culture really come into play because in culture, and that could be true in a company culture, but that's also actually true like cross-culturally in the world. Certain cultures have much more power distance than others. Like the United States and Scandinavian countries are democratic in terms of that. There's lower power distance, but if you go to Japan, there is much higher power distance. And so the ability to openly speak truth to power is different in those contexts. And so I think that's something that people can and ought to look at if they're serious about this. What are the cultural factors that frankly are making it harder for people to do what we would like them to, which is come up with great stuff and put it in the world? Yes. So you said that you do a lot of coaching and advising for startups. How did you get into that part of your career? Yeah. For me, it started organically. I was working on other things full-time as a product person, and you just get to know people over time. It started informally. Oh, hey, a friend of mine who worked at a VC firm was like, hey, can you, we're doing a thing with our newest batch. Can you do some mentoring for us? Yeah, sure. No problem. So it was a lot of informal. And then piece by piece, it started to become more formalized. It made sense to do a bigger formal engagement because it was too big for, hey, let's just have lunch, which is one thing and it's great. But sometimes we really need to like get in here and work on something for a month, three months. And that's just a whole different order of magnitude of work. So it started organically. And then it's something that a few months ago I started saying, you know what, I really want to push into this and explore this as a full-time thing. And so I'm doing that for now and we'll see how that evolves. And I've got some stuff I'm working on now and really enjoying it. And we'll see how it evolves. But thus far, it's been really fun and it's satisfying to get to work like that with not just one thing. And it's like, that's the big difference. And I think you and I have spoken about this before is I have a lot of energy and it's fun to be able to channel that, to contribute that energy to multiple projects simultaneously. Yeah. It's like the portfolio approach for your own career projects. Yeah, absolutely. Which is nice. Sometimes I think it's important to go deep on a thing when it's the right thing for you. And when I always remain open to that possibility, if like I see a thing that I'm like, oh my God, I have to stop everything and go build this. Okay. Well, that's fine. But that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be that way all the time. Yes. In a previous episode, we introduced you to Miro Remias from Product Board. In this episode, I asked him how they process all of the feedback that comes in through different channels from their customers. And here's what he had to say. 
There was times when we as a product managers had to do the triaging. So basically every PM was going through all the feedback and based on certain internal rules, was assigning this feedback to individual product managers. We actually build a functionality that insights automation. So basically you can define a rule based on which the feedback is automatically forwarded to the right inbox of individual PMs. So there is less time spent on the feedback coming to the right PMs at this moment. And I spend more time on actually reading feedback that reaches to me automatically. The automation rules, they're fairly flexible. So it could be based on the title of the node, based on the content, based on a tag assigned, based on the source of the feedback that's coming in. There are various options you can pick and choose from, and these could be all combined together. This actually highly depends on the stage of the product process. When you're trying to just get a sense of what's happening out there, typically you take all the feedback and try to assign it to the right high-level buckets. From time to time, there might be interesting insights that you want to follow up with the customer specifically. So you set up, you try to reach out to him and her set up a meeting and go more into details. But it's typically later on once the opportunity gets a green light when we try to dive more into needs of our customers. During those times, we actually pinpoint use cases or problems of our customers, try to reach out to those customers from whom we received feedback, set up an interview, and this way expand on the initial request from the customer. It's impossible for us to respond to every single customer, but rest assured we are taking all the feedback seriously and documenting it in the right buckets. So that's what Mira had to say about how product board processes the feedback that comes in from customers. Now back to our interview. So one time when you and I spoke, I remember you were dealing with a fairly complex product area. Can you tell our listeners more about that area? Yeah. So I think I know what you're talking about. So it was a few years back. I was working on, it was the fish health monitoring system I was talking about in the aquaculture space, which is now out in the world called Falcon. And anybody wants to go look that up. And that was a joint venture with a very large animal health company. So the issue that I think, if I'm remembering correctly, was we were pretty close to launch. We were like, I think eight or nine months out from launch and we were getting stalled. And at this point, just for context, we had a pretty sizable group of people working on this thing. We had something like, depending on how you want to count it, right? Because we had different partner companies involved and everything. Something like 50 people working on this across six countries and spread out a bunch of different time zones. And not only were they spread out like that, they came from different cultures. There was different cultural backgrounds. Like there were Scandinavians involved. There were Israelis. There were Canadians. There was Australians. There was a few Asian folks. So the point here, what was really going on was these teams, like we had different teams. And so I'd be talking with the lead of one team and they would talk about how it's going and they'd be like, okay, we're doing great here, but like, oh, this is driving us crazy. The thing that was driving them crazy, they would point at another team. And then you go talk to the other team and they would basically do the same thing, but pointing back at the first team. This starts to become this pattern where I'm checking in with my different team leads. And suddenly you're like, wait a minute, everybody's like pointing fingers at each other. What is going on here? What is really happening? Because technically stuff was working. Technically, the thing was developing along a pace like it needed to, but it was still running a little bit behind where we wanted. Like the algorithm development wasn't where we needed it to be yet. Certain metrics were not where we needed them to be yet really to go live in public. Like the launch that was looming and putting pressure on this was there was a major trade show happening in Scandinavia that we were going to launch at that. I think that was in August or September of the year. And this is back in like January, February of the year. So everyone's like looking at this saying, okay, we've got seven, eight months to do an enormous amount of work. And there's fingers starting to get pointed. And the thing in particular that everyone was doing good work. And that was the first thing was to realize when I went and talked to people, everyone was working really hard. 
and had really good intentions. But when I would start to dig into the problems and say, okay, tell me about what's going on. They would articulate some struggle with another team. And these were cross-cultural teams, kind of the key point. So for example, specifically, there was one of the development teams that I was working very closely with was based in California, in two different cities in California. And then the counterpart team was in Norway. And so there was these two different cultures in a very bad time zone setup. It was like nine or 10 hours apart. Someone on every call is really tired, which is already not a helpful thing. It's a really crap setup, frankly. Yeah. And you're also far away and it's hard to go like visit and FaceTime makes all the difference in the world for this kind of thing. That's rough. But as we started to talk of the California folks would say, we don't understand, like, why can't they make a decision? They're so slow. This is driving us insane. And then I would talk to the Norway folks and they were like, why are they going so fast on this stuff? Like they're breaking everything and then we have to fix the problems that they break. And so each side has a very valid perspective. This was getting deployed in Norway. So they were closer to the field. And so that is a whole other set of problems they had to deal with that the California folks didn't. Anyways, and so we start to look into it and I realized that I was kind of starting to lose my mind a little bit, frankly. I was going crazy because nothing anybody was trying was working. We were trying everything we could think of, all the standard stuff, and it wasn't really fixing it. Like the problem remained. And I don't know how I found this, but somehow I found a book. It's called The Culture Map by Erin Meyer, I think it is. Maybe getting that author name wrong, but she's a professor in a business school in France, I think. And she had done a study, basically how does business and how does collaboration work across cultures? And has mapped it out on a number of different dimensions. Like I mentioned, power distance earlier. That's one of those dimensions. And there's 10 of these dimensions or something. And I read this book and I was like, oh my God, I think this might be it. And so specifically what I noticed was there was a really big difference when you mapped out along these dimensions, the cultures of the teams involved. And basically where you see two cultures far away from each other on a dimension, you were very likely to have conflict. And it's usually the kind of conflict that is not obvious because you just don't understand where it's coming from because it's in like the implicit worldview level that people are operating from without even knowing that they're doing it. So specifically, the one that was driving everybody crazy, there's a dimension in her model that I don't remember the name of, but it's basically about how decisions get made. And the gist of it was in a culture like the United States, we tend to make a lot of decisions. We make them fast with the expectation that I'm going to make a call now. It's two-way door, and then we'll figure out where we're wrong, and we'll adjust. We'll make a new decision, and we will repeat that process, and we'll iterate our way to a decision with a big D, like the big final decision where it's a go, and it's like a one-way door. Now, when you looked at this one dimension of culture, of work culture specifically, the other team had almost the opposite default place that they came from. They would do is very much consensus building. They would go get everybody involved, and they would beat on the ideas on paper, and stress test like everything on paper and get everybody on board. And by the time it got to the point of saying, okay, we are making a decision and we are going, it was like a big decision and it was a one-way door. But it was like two very different ways of getting to the same point. But because neither side understood how the other side viewed the world, they both just thought each other were crazy. But as soon as I introduced this model to some of my team leads in California, they were all like, oh my God, that's why they're so slow. (laughs) And so they started realizing like, oh, this is what's going on. And not that fixed everything, but I can tell you within about two to three weeks, team dynamics improved significantly. And then doing that, adding some FaceTime and trying to move on other things really made a difference. And so maybe the moral of the story here is a lot of times the conflicts that make things difficult are coming out of a worldview level thing, like when they're really intractable type problems. And I think as product people, one of our superpowers is empathy and having empathy for the unsaid, I think might be 
a really important thing to consider. Yeah, that's great. I definitely have seen that kind of clash specifically with the decision-making process in a lot of tech companies because there's the move fast and break things camp and there's the let's look for the gotchas before we get their camp and they don't always meet very well. Yeah, but it's crazy because when you lay it out like this, it's actually obvious. You're like, we're all trying to do the same thing here. We're trying to get this thing right. We're just taking two really different strategies towards that same goal. Yeah. And when we don't see that, we make each other insane. And where did it end up? Did it end up some kind of compromise in between or like how did they learn to work together better? So first, what changed was the team leads from each side. I went and I had one-on-ones with each of the team leads from each side and basically tried to get them to see through this lens. Once they did, they were like, oh, huh, okay. And so then they came together and I got out of the way. And I said, okay, y'all go talk. I don't need to be there. It can be if you want, but this is really between you two. And they started to understand each other. And then they started to make explicit agreements about when we would do each way. There were certain things from the go slow, get it right on paper the first time. There were certain situations where that did make sense. And a lot of that had to do with like stakeholder constraints on their side. So for example, like some of their upper management couldn't sign off on stuff until it had gone through a certain process. And so understanding that made the California folks a lot more understanding. But then by the same token, understanding the California approach really helped some of the Norway folks have more tolerance for the things that they were not that exposed to. So they were doing a lot of the close to the field edge hardware testing. And the teams that I'm referring to here were doing a lot of the initial hardware design that was getting handed off. And then a lot of the ongoing algorithm development and uh, testing. And realizing that those two different pieces of this product, which have to come together into a holistic product, they can be treated differently, but we had to find a way to sync them up. That helped. And so basically getting those teams to agree on sync points and say, okay, we are going to come together at this interval or this cadence. And at that point, however you got there, you've got to be ready to sync this stuff up and both sides have got to be ready to mesh what they've got. But independently, you can get there however you want. And then there's this set of things in the middle that we are agreeing, we're making a new agreement about how we're going to deal with. So that's how it ended up working out in the relatively short term. And then team-wise, it got more complicated because we had then more teams getting involved as we got closer to launch, which changed the puzzle again. But in terms of that specific situation, that's how it played out. And it ended up being working out fairly well. The other thing was if you've never led a distributed team, like, well, I guess most people have done that now, (laughs) thanks to the pandemic. Yeah. But I think one of the big takeaways as we're coming out of the pandemic and into a time where we can co-locate to even for periods of time, is just how important FaceTime is. Every company I've ever studied that, whether it was like on my podcast or just reading about them or talking to people, every company I've ever encountered that had a really good culture that was a distributed team, they prioritized FaceTime. And that doesn't mean co-location all the time, but it means enough of it, like a heartbeat of co-location that people felt connected because we just, as biological creatures, we still need that. And buying some very expensive plane tickets and sending people halfway around the world for two weeks at a time was also extremely important in that product working out, frankly. There was, I remember us buying some very expensive trips, but completely worth it. That makes a lot of sense. And it's one of those things that I think is hard to replace that in-person FaceTime, but it also like, I have worked at companies that have done a pretty good job, but they're few and far between. I think part of the reason for that, and I agree with what you're saying, is it's always a tricky question. When I talk to early stage founders, there's always this tricky question of at what point do I start really investing in culture? 
because a lot of the time they're just trying to stay alive and make their next milestone or getting their numbers to the right level that they can raise their next round and so on and so forth. But there's also a point where beyond it, you have the culture you have. At a certain number of people, you have a culture. And if you didn't design that culture intentionally, well, it's a lot harder to change it than it is to design it in the first place. So I don't know if there's a specific number, but I think once a team starts really hit double digits, I think you really need to start thinking about your culture. Ideally thinking about it before. One of my mentors always drilled into my head that your first 10 people set the culture for the rest of the company. And so I think it's really easy to make short-term trades to get something done in terms of saying, we just need X done and not think about the people and how they shape the culture. And that can actually have some really long-term, really long-term implications. Definitely. One of the other things that came up in your bio that I'm curious to hear more about is your involvement in cognitive science. I think that's a really fascinating topic and it's something that product people can really benefit from learning more about. How did you first get interested in it? For me, I think there's like the initial interest and then there's when I realized I was interested in it. I think I've always been interested in that, really in the mind. I think my deepest fascination is the thing that for me connects all the dots of the things I work on in my life is this sense of how do we unleash the creative power of the mind? To me, it's like the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> it's just like the potential walking around in people's heads all day. And so whenever I look at stuff, whether it's like organizational design or product discovery techniques or whatever, for me, it's all aimed at that point. It's like people have genius in them and I want it to come out in the world and do something with it. I think explicitly for me, the pathway was first, I think it really came for me out of meditation. I got really interested in meditation Initially, when I was finishing college, and then I'd say about 10 years ago, I got seriously interested in meditation and started really leaning into that practice. And, and that's actually become like a really big part of my life. It's something I spend a lot of time on, I think a lot about. And then from there, I think I assume like a lot of product people, I'm very interested in, in psychology. How do people work? What makes these people tick? What helps them thrive? And from there, it went like psychology into behavioral economics and then into neuroscience. And then how do you smash all this together and do something with it? And so for me, it's just become this intellectual passion in a lot of ways that I think is fascinating on its own. But then it just also, I think, happens to be pretty useful for the kind of stuff that we do. So yeah, that was my weird road into it. I think it depends what someone's trying to do. And this is where I think the context really matters for somebody. I think everybody would benefit tremendously from understanding basic consumer psychology and cognitive bias. That I think is across the board useful. What are some of the resources that you found really useful as you walk down that pathway? One, I'm looking at the bookshelf right now and one that's jumping out at me is Hooked by Nir Eyal is a great one. Design for Cognitive Bias by David Dylan Thomas. I interviewed him on my podcast about a year ago and I really like his work of bringing cognitive bias into the design, the product design process specifically. In terms of Behavioral economics, I actually, Atomic Habits by James Clears is quite good. I personally prefer the work of BJ Fogg at Stanford. He had or has a lab called the Persuasive Tech Lab and has written a few books about how to apply these things directly, both into product development. Uh, he has an earlier book from 10 years ago about that, but then also just in terms of behavior change. And that I think is actually useful if we're designing something. In some ways, many products are behavior change interventions. And so if you're going to Try and change somebody's behavior, which by the way is super hard, you better understand it. So I think looking at behavior change, behavioral economics is a gold mine as well. And then depending on what someone is working on, some of the folks I've worked with and collaborated with are working specifically on something like mental health or human performance. And at that point, it makes sense to go deeper. 
So at that point, you may actually need to tap into some of the neuroscience and actually pop the hood on the mind and get down to the brain itself. In terms of resources on that, I don't know any great ones that are good starting points. I would probably suggest people look at, if they really want to like learn this stuff, look at some of the really good MOOCs out there. Like there's some really good stuff on Coursera. MIT OpenCourseWare has a really, really good course about the brain and kind of understanding foundational neuroscience. But again, I don't know that that's actually that useful for people. I think most people are better served through cognitive psychology and behavioral economics. Yeah, those are some great recommendations. Some of those I've checked out myself and Nir Ayal's been on this podcast twice. So definitely a fan of him. If listeners haven't heard those episodes, go back and check them out. Oh, there you go. So how do you use that knowledge when you're working in startups? Yeah, I think it's a really juicy question. This is where I go back to context matters so much. So I think it's looking at, I tend to bring an intersection to three lenses to my work, which is, and this is not in order, but basically product, organizational design and leadership, and then cognitive science. Those are the three circles on my Venn diagram, basically. And so those can be applied in a lot of ways. And what I try to do is to start, just meet the people where they are and understand what do they need. And that I think is very much dependent on the size of the org and what they're trying to do. So one project I'm working with right now is a new consumer hardware play. And so they think they see an opportunity to make a new device gadget that people are going to love that is in a very competitive market. And so some of the work we're doing there is to really try to dig into the consumer psychology of what do these people really want and need, and then what's going to get them to switch. So that's much more of a behavioral economics kind of thing of, great, what is the struggle that they are actually dealing with and what either hooks or what interventions or habits can we create for them that are going to make them adopt this instead of their existing alternatives. So that's one where you're like, okay, go to the behavioral economics angle. Another one that I'm helping is a very much a mental health intervention. And it's about helping folks recover from addictions. And so that is much more of a clinical situation where there are doctors involved and there are clinical healthcare facilities involved. And so there, it's some combination of neuroscience and psychology, where on the one hand, it's understanding some of the psychological issues that these folks are dealing with and how that is likely to affect them day to day. Because if they understand the cycles that these folks are going through, these patients are experiencing in their journey, they can design interventions for their product to be able to jump in there at risky points. So for example, if they understand how someone is experiencing the cycle of stresses that they're going through in recovery, they can figure out, okay, here's a really important point for us to be able to get in there and help them that can make the difference between them relapsing and staying on their program. And that's affected by both the neurobiology of that person's experience recovering from addiction, but also the psychological things that they're going through as they're reforming their identity, finding new structures for their world. So in that one, it's an intersection of the neuroscience and positive psychology, so to speak. That sounds super cool too. Like I am really interested in being involved in products that help people like that. Cool. So that sounds like an awesome application of your skills. Yeah, for sure. And next time I talk to them, I will float your name out there and see if we can get you involved there. Yeah, please do. I think this is a, such an interesting area, I think, for folks who come out of the world we've spent so much time in is I am all for building cool stuff. There's certain categories of products that I'm personally not interested in for my own reasons. And those are usually my own sense of values or ethics or what I believe is important. Yeah. 
But then beyond that, people can do whatever they want. But I think it is great when, if you see an opportunity to use the skills that you have for something like that really does help people and not in the tech bro on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt coming up with, we changed the world by XYZ, but like legitimately helps people solve important real problems. You don't find those every day, but when you do, it's really nice to help. Absolutely. It's awesome. Yeah. We should probably wrap up. Where can people find you if they want to learn more? I would say the best two places are, first of all, on Twitter at ASKOTZKO, A-S-K-O-T-Z-K-O. And then check out, you can always find me on my podcast, which is called Make Things That Matter, which the title of that is probably obvious after listening to me. And you can do that on anywhere you find your podcasts or makethingsthatmatter.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you, Andrew. It's great being with you, Holly. Thanks for having me. The Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high-growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you like the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.